Some bonds last a lifetime. Some bonds inspire confidence. And some you grow to rely on. These are the bonds worth investing in. For nearly 50 years, PIMCO has reinvented fixed income to create opportunities for investors in every market environment. So no matter what happens, you can build the bonds that mean the most to you. PIMCO, a global leader in active fixed income. Learn more at PIMCO.com bonds. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, put it in context. So call me, 1-800-743-CBC, or tweet me at Jim Kramer. You gotta admire the resilience of this market. On a sedate day, Dow gained 68 points. That's a beat inched up 0.05%. NASDAQ advanced 0.3%. What stands out to me is the incredible resilience of so many stocks that you expected to get hammered over time. Or in today's session, stocks like Boeing. Oh, come on. This company has been hit with a parade of negativity. The, the most negative publicity maybe I've but seen in ages. Pain. Ever since its second 737 MAX 8 crash in Ethiopia, we hear about the airlines pulling orders and the stock barely gets ding. Yet when I speak to very sophisticated investors, it, I, I'm not kidding. They're wondering how Boeing can stay up 18% for the year. No, they actually, they want to know how it can avoid being cut in half. They fret about whether Boeing will be able to stay in business. But what happens to the stock? It's in an alternate universe, people. It was up another 626 today. Says there's no reason to work. Oh, tell me you haven't been thinking what is Boeing doing up here. I know you have. I think about it every day. Now, Boeing reports this week. I figured it'll guide down substantially because the 737 MAX 8 was their most popular plane. That's what I expect the buyers to finally pause. Not the buyers of the planes, but the buyers of the, of the stock. Now, if you went on Boeing, I'd wait for that pullback. But the fact is, this thing has been ridiculously resilient. I mean, how the heck can the bears take down anything if they can't take down the resilient ranger that is Boeing. You want another example? Here's one that just got tarred and feathered. Nike. How about this, Nike? When Nike reported last month, the stock got clocked because North American sales were about a percentage point too slow. After the stock fell six bucks, I pointed out that management gave you a perfectly good explanation for the miss. The hideous winter weather nationwide. So you had to hold your nose and you had to buy the stock of Nike. Stock was at 88 before it allegedly laid an egg. Now it's at 87.80. You blinked, you missed. Nike's a sensational company. While others struggle in China, they're making a fortune in the People's Republic. They've come on so strong in Europe, and I am betting the U.S. will rebound this quarter. So Nike definitively deserves the benefit of the doubt. But it's still kind of amazing, isn't it? The stock, stock's getting it. Although it was a delayed reaction. All right, how about this one? This is one. Oh, my. All you could hear about for the whole day was the downgrade. No, the double downgrade of Caterpillar that UBS hit it with. That's right. From buy to sell. Since then, the stock's actually rallied. It's rallied a couple of bucks. When I heard about the double downgrade, I assumed that the analysts had to know something. Right? I mean, you don't make a double downgrade unless it's about to like, collapse. Yet we haven't been hit with anything. In fact, the stock's saying that Caterpillar report a good quarter next week. Of course, stocks turn out to be wrong all the time. But I think CAD is worth owning. Buyers took the stock up almost two bucks today. Talk about a resilient ranger. 
Then there's one that I told you to buy that people thought I was a complete idiot, but they think that all the time. Oh, by the way, I'm responsible for everything that happened with Lyft. I don't know if you realize that. Then there's Home Depot. Home Depot, which hit, hit with a, a so-called disappointing. I'm calling it so-called because stocks can't go up if it's a real dis- so-called disappointing quarter at the end of February. Coupled with not so hot guidance. At the time, I argued that the results would have been terrific if not for the horrendous weather. Management told an incredibly bullish story on the conference call. Didn't matter. Stock fell from 188 to 180 in a cascade of selling. Since then, though, Home Depot has practically been up in a straight line, as virtually every other indicator told us, a retailer told us that same darn story about the weather. It wasn't just Home Depot. If you're waiting for the company to give you some sort of all clear, which many of you are, well, I think you'll get it when they report again because it's long garden season, but you have waited too long. I mean, the stock's already skyrocketed to 204. Maybe next time, give management the benefit of the doubt. They've deserved it for years. We've seen something similar happen with a little uh, outfit that I really like. Uh, we talked with Matt Boss about last week, Five Below. It's one of my favorite retailers. The company reported a quarter that was widely panned with a downbeat earnings forecast, and its stock fell from 129 in late March to 117 a few days later. But now Five Below has come roaring back, aided by some compelling upgrades from Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan's boss. Uh, good presentation last week. And the stock just made a new all-time high, just closing a shade under 139. Talk about resilience. What else? For months, the analysts who follow Western Digital, maker of hard drives and flash memory, have cut their numbers and cut their numbers and cut their numbers. They've been saying there's way too much supply. That there's a total glut. That look at it's going to end bad. So what happens? The stock refuses to go down. Same goes for Micron, which makes flash chips and also DRAMs. It's held up amazingly well despite downgrade after downgrade after downgrade after downgrade after downgrade. Today, we finally got the call I've been waiting for, an upgrade from Deutsche Bank predicting the the, uh, elusive second half recovery is almost here. Once again, the stock has proved the doubters wrong, and there's a reason for that. When you see something like Micron or Western Digital rallying in the face of multiple downgrades, Wake up, people. It means investors believe that the pricing will turn in a commodity. In other words, the analysts are behind the curve. The current weakness is baked in, and the stocks are now forecasting a comeback. Oh, here's a wild one, Dow DuPont. Uh, The giant chemical company recently spun off Dow. Before the spinoff, the company gave you one of the most downbeat forecasts of any industrial. However, while the stock initially got it, it got hit. Well, it, it turned around. It's been climbing ever since. Oh, and since the spinoff, the new Dow has been a fantastic performer. You had to buy Dow DuPont at its ugliest moment because it's resilient. If you Googled resilient, you'd see a picture of Mark Zuckerberg. Facebook. Today we learned that Mark Zuckerberg did something bad again. I don't know, some nefarious. I, I, mean, I read it a thousand times. I know he did something wrong. Okay, I mean, I, whatever. According to leaked documents, he toyed with the idea of selling your toyed with, but he's like, you know, kind of right here in his brain, uh, to selling your name to third party developers just to get a sense of what it might be worth in the open market. But Zuckerberg insists he didn't sell you out. Hey, remember, he actually remember he wrote that really important cogent op ed piece about how the Internet needs to be regulated. Shows you what a good guy he is. People snapped up. The truth is, as we've learned over the course of the past year, can we just put an end to this? None of these stories matter. It's about earnings per share. The people who should care about Facebook and its privacy, they don't. Instagram is now the single best place to advertise on the web to the point where their rates are soaring. The rates are getting too expensive. The biggest issue Facebook has. They don't want their ad rates to get out of control. Now, that's a high-quality problem, which is why this stock ended up losing only 78 cents on what should have been a killer article you know was written in order to bury him. These guys refuse to be buried. Finally, there's Apple. 
the ultimate example of resilience in this market. When Apple told you the sales would be weaker than expected beginning of January, the stock got clobbered, falling to 142. But since then, it's been practically straight up, falling to 199 as of today. Incredibly, this move has all happened on hype. We haven't seen anything confirming that the sales are rebounding. We don't have a trade deal with China. Apple's biggest area of weakness is China. We do have a bunch of new services, the credit card, the streaming video service, the new service, the gaming service, but it's still pretty sketchy. And, you know, we got some data from March that's saying that maybe the sales are better in China. Yet the stock's been on fire. You had to own Apple, not trade it. And with today's announcement of a truce with Qualcomm, my biggest worry had been that Apple would be late with 5G. It's no longer an issue. That's all anyone talked about was the benefit for Qualcomm. But I think that Apple should have been up more than two cents on this news, even as Qualcomm stock was right to rally $15. I smell a downgrade of Apple tomorrow morning. What can I do? Shouldn't be down. Of course, not everything can bounce. Oh, United Health, thanks for nothing, is in free fall, down nine bucks today for reporting a fabulous quarter that actually had the stock up eight bucks at one point. But the whole health insurance cohort is in the doghouse because so many of the Democrats running for president want to replace private insurers with single payer, and because the CEO of United Health took them all on, saying it would be bad. Didn't need to pick that fight. Here's the bottom line the rest of the market is incredibly resilient, okay? Resilient. Just kind of hangs in there like Muhammad Ali. It's rope doping. It's rope dopes its opponents until it can knock them flat on the canvas. I need to start with Paul in Tennessee, please, Paul. Jim, I just got finished reading Get Rich Carefully. A lot of great guidance in the book. Nice. My questions are about Starbucks with the recent RSI overbought status and the recent shaky restructuring of its rewards program. But with its global outlook for potential growth, how do you feel about Starbucks as a long-term investment, and is it still a buy even at well, its current uh, price? Long-term is the right term for this. This stock has been up pretty much incrementally for almost every single day, and I don't like to chase like that. There's going to be a day where this stock is down two or three, and then I think you pull the trigger. All right, this is one gosh darn resilient market. How do I know that? There have been so many companies that have been hit with a cluster of bad news, yet their stocks have managed to defy the odds, and that's the definition of a bull market. Oh, man, tonight, IBM just reported earnings at the close. I'm going to sit down with one of the top execs, kind of see through, but it's a very mixed picture. Then, with the NASDAQ back in striking distance of all-time highs, I'm circling back to the biggest winners in tech in tonight's off-the-charts. Hey, one of them, I think, is so ready to go higher. And Spain might be known for its flamingo music, uh, bullfights, tapas. But maybe you should pay attention to its banks and its brains. I'm sitting down with Santander. See if it could be worth considering in this market. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Some bonds last a lifetime. Some bonds inspire confidence. And some you grow to rely on. These are the bonds worth investing in. For nearly 50 years, PIMCO has reinvented fixed income to create opportunities for investors in every market environment. So no matter what happens, you can build the bonds that mean the most to you. PIMCO, a global leader in active fixed income. Learn more at PIMCO.com bonds. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing. Hey, 
When IBM reported this evening, it beat the bottom line, but the top line failed to best most of the street's estimates. Given that the stock is up 27% for the year, you can expect some profit-taking, but there's still a lot to like, including the 4 and a third percent yield and the upcoming closing of the deal to buy Red Hat, one of our favorite cloud kings. So let's check in with Martin Schroeder. He's the Senior Vice President for IBM Global Markets to learn more about the quarter and where the business might be headed. Mr. Schroeder, welcome back to Mad Money. Martin, I don't know what to do because I love the earnings per share beat. The gross margin is terrific. Your cash flow much better than I expected. But people are going to key on the revenue line. What do you have to say to the people that, like, look, don't worry about the revenues? Because we know technology, we always have to worry about the revenues. Yeah, look, so, I mean, obviously, we want to grow revenue, right? That's, right? that's pretty clear. And our business model says we should grow revenue. But we've also been really clear and we've been really focused on making sure we get growth in the right places. So if you look, for instance, just at the first quarter, really good growth in, in cognitive cloud software again, really good growth in GBS, right? The, the systems business improved from a trajectory standpoint, but there's a product cycle in there that right. probably I'm not too worried about. And let's talk for a second about GTS, right? So that's a big services business. Okay. And this is where we've always said we want to get growth in the right places. Right. So, okay. so, so we, we didn't see it in revenue this time, but we did see it in margin improvement in GTS. So overall, IBM margins were up. As you said, we, we like the margin story too. Overall margins were up, but we've been very selective about our global technology services business and where we're placing our bets. And we want to make sure that turns into high margin. Okay, I like you placing your bets in the strategic imperative uh, vision that you have. But I was surprised. I know some investors... Uh, didn't seem to want anymore once it got to 50%. I always liked that. From the day I met you, I always wanted to know whether strategic comparators would be 60% or 70%, but you discontinued talking about it. Well, so so we, we put that in place uh, 2015, right, when we right. said when the business was about 25% of that kind of a content, right? And, and at the time, the discussion we we're having with our clients was, you know, give me productivity in this part of our business and then help right. me reinvest. And those were, that's what the strategic rep, uh, imperatives represented. Now, at the time in 2015, we said by 2018, this will be $40 billion and about 40% of our business. Okay. Right? We hit the 40% a long time ago. We hit the $40 billion at the end of 2018, like we said. And now our investors are telling us, look, what we really want to do is we want to understand the cloud story. We want to understand the right. as-a-service story. Strategic imperatives, we understood that. We followed along with okay. the, with the, with the, uh, with the progress, but right now it's really about cloud and it's about as a service. So that's what we focused our uh, our disclosures on. Obviously, we run a set of segments, right. but we, we supplement that with the cloud story and with the as a service well, story. I'm going to focus on that for myself. Uh, we were quite enamored of the Masters app. And Masters I know that app. sometimes you, have, you run a lot of ads, but to me, the greatest ad I've ever seen was what you had. Is that a cloud-derived strategic imperative that produced, I thought, maybe I watch all the apps. What I thought was maybe the best ever. Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you appreciate it, by the way. So I think there's a, real, there's a real lesson in here for what we can help our clients do, uh, both from, a, say, a security standpoint. So mm-hmm. we, we monitored 150 million or so security events, which were actually about a million real attacks okay. just during the Masters, right? Oh, now, what? A million attacks during the Masters? Just during the Masters. So, so we monitor 70 billion events a day across okay. our networks. For, for, so, so there's a security element of this app, which is, which is I think, important at scale. Okay. More importantly, though, I think what the, what the Masters app is, is a really good demonstration of how AI can be used to help drive an enterprise. So I'll give you okay. an example. We introduced already last year this idea of, uh, of a round in three in, in 30 seconds, a round in three minutes, right? Okay. Round in three minutes. When we did it last year, they had, uh, we could follow 10 golfers. 
and it took hours, hours right. to put that together to get it out on the website. This year, with the help of our AI, we collected all that information on every golfer, and everyone was done within about an hour. So about an hour after they finished their round, we could take their entire round, we could figure out with analytics what was the, what was the real round. So, so what it says is when you're trying to serve your clients, and there's nobody more, more uh, focused on serving their right. patrons than Augusta and the Masters. When you're trying to serve your clients, you have to find new ways and you have to use AI to do that. And this is a really good example of how you can do that in a very productive way to serve your client base. All right, so let's drill down some other things. Uh, I like the IBM that is growing. You know I'm a big fan of Red Hat. And boy, I got to tell you, people laughed at that price. But then you look at all the other cloud kings, and now Red Hat's the cheapest. But I didn't see much other than it's going to close in the second half. And second, why are you still buying back stock? I just want your balance sheet to be good and invest in Red Hat. So a couple of things. I mean, Red Hat, as you said, it is like the gem in this in this space, right? So J- uh, Red you Hat know makes I've liked money. it. You know I've liked it from the day have. that Whitehurst got there. So Red Hat is a is a is a great acquisition. We're still going through the regulatory process. So you know, hopefully in the second half, as we said, we'll get that done, and then it'll be part of us. So so it, they make money, right? So right. while while we haven't we haven't paid for it yet. So while we're in this position, we can still continue to return capital to shareholders. Has always been part of our model, but we've also said that once we close on that, then we'll pull back on share repurchase. Right? We'll keep paying the dividend, okay. but we'll pull back on share repurchase. So, so and that part of the model is, I think, is is the right way to, to the right thing to do. From a what's next in Red Hat? I mean, we we really did see, I think, the beginnings of some really positive things. Now that we're uh, we, we've reported, Red Hat's reported after the announcement of the acquisition. They had a good right? quarter. They had a, they had a very good quarter. Yeah. And when you look at the parts of our business that did well, our hybrid cloud business grew. It accelerated, right? And and GBS and the the work they're doing to help uh, the our clients move onto the cloud in GBS is growing twenty five percent. So it's a very good story. But you, you, please, for our viewers, Red Hat to hybrid cloud is kind of something that is in their DNA. So this is going to be very, very synergistic. Right. So when you when we think about the world of of, of uh, the world of enterprise technology in the future, it is hybrid, right? right? Hybrid. We've said that for a long time. I think I think others who were competing are starting to say it's about hybrid as well. In the hybrid world, Red Hat is that is that open operating system, open operating system that sits on all of these clouds. So the reason Red Hat has such a such a bright future is because they are the number one operating system now. Linux is number one in the right. in the data center, and they are number one and, in Linux. And we understand they're not necessarily going to steer everything toward you. That's very clear. No. And that they, they are a bit of a, more Switzerland than IBM's used to. So will Jim from Switzerland stay with IBM? Well, we've already said, and Jim's already said that you know he's going to run. Excited. He he's said gonna, it here. He said it here. He's going okay, to run. To be he's sure. going to run Red Hat, okay. and he's going to report to our CEO. So yeah, so there'll be an entity within IBM. Jim and the leadership team will continue to run Red Hat. Right, one last thing on the revenues: uh, any area that was weaker, Asia, uh, Far East, because I did expect the revenues to be a little bit better. So so yeah, I mean. Yes, there's a geographic element to this, but look, I'm the sales guy, so I was in the middle of all these deals, all right? right? I, I would say it this way. Um, our clients are, you know, they make big commitments to our platform. Right. They're making big investment decisions. And when you do that, you know, it doesn't necessarily suit a 90-day period. It True. just doesn't. Right? Banco Santander does not go by 90 days. Right. So, so for us and our teams, you know, obviously our, our clients are thoughtful, trying to make sure they're doing the right thing, getting the right deal. We're also, we, there's an ability for us. We can close deals much, much faster, but we wind up giving something away. It right. doesn't make sense, right? So, so again, I'm, I'm the salesperson. I'm in the middle of these deals. Right. I know my sales teams. 
yes, some deals. The phenomenon I described happens in different places. Right. It happened in Asia this, this quarter. Okay. So all these deals are in play. They're all being worked now. We will get them done. All right. Thank you so much. That is Martin Schroeder. He's IBM Senior Vice President of Global Markets. Some very exciting things here, but I know if you focus just on the revenues, you'll be a little bit disappointed. But there are other things at work, including Red Hat, one of my favorite companies. Man, buddy's back in for the break. The goal? Explain the 1990s in exactly 60 songs. Tupac, Lauryn Hill, You Oughta Know, Cream. The greater goal? Move past cheap nostalgia to something deeper and weirder and better. My name is Rob Harvilla. I'm a music critic at The Ringer. And whether you're full of teenage angst or you feel bored and old, whether you don't know the song at all or you know it far too well, my new show will take you through the decade one song at a time. It's 60 songs that explain the 90s. Follow and listen for free on Spotify. With the NASDAQ now back within striking distance of its all-time highs, even as many of the cloud stocks are taking a bit of a breather, I think it's worth checking in on some of the biggest winners in tech that we haven't talked about in a long time. So tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Bob Lang, the founder of ExplosiveOptions.net, as well as being the brilliant technician and the all-star duo behind the Street.com's Trifecta Stocks newsletter and the author of Know Your Options to take a closer look at three of his favorite newly hot stocks. Alphabet, used to be Google. Snap and Alibaba. Let's start out with the daily chart of Alphabet. Okay. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty of the action here, Lang's been having a ton of success with a new momentum indicator. Strictly speaking, it's not new. It was created way back in the 1960s by a Japanese journalist to provide technicians with more data points than you get from a traditional candlestick chart. See these red and green zones? They're what's known as the Ichimoku cloud. Yeah, Ichimoku. Bear with me. Okay, to put it simply, the Ichimoku cloud shows uh, two moving averages, upper and lower. It can actually go up to five moving averages, but for our purposes, two is enough. The first one is known as the Senku Span A, and that's the green line. Okay, this is the green line, all right? And it represents the midpoint of a 26-day moving average and a nine-day moving average. In other words, the green line measures the stock's short-term trajectory. Then there's the red line. That's the Senku Span B. You can see it's right here, traces there, which represents the average range of the stock over the past year. The space between these two lines forms a kind of cloud, hence the name. When the green line is above the red line, okay, as it is the case right here, meaning the stock's short-term trajectory is better than the long-term range, the cloud turns green, which tells you the trend is bullish. When the red line goes above the green line, the cloud turns red, which tells you the trend is bearish. So far, it's pretty straightforward. It's not too different from watching for a a moving average crossover, right? But there's one more piece of the puzzle here. Lang points out that the Ichimoku cloud is expanding. When the distances between the two lines gets wider, this indicator is predicting that the stock is poised to rally. Now that that you know how it works, let's get back to Alphabet. Right now, the Ichimoku cloud is green. It's expanding as it trends higher. For Lang, that's a very positive, bullish tell. What else does Alphabet have going for it? The stock is now rebounded back to where it was trading before it got crushed by the market-wide sell-off. I mean, this was just, this was, of the ones that got hurt that were fang, I mean, this thing didn't even know what hit them, okay? Uh, at these levels, Alphabet's pushing against the ceiling resistance established by the double top. See that? Here's why Lang believes that we can break through the double pop top ceiling. The stock is used to be making a series of small inverse head and shoulders formations. And here you see that. Okay. 
Uh, it looks like an upside-down person. And this is one of the most reliably bullish patterns in the book. When I did uh, Get Rich Carefully, I found that it was the single most reliable pattern. A reverse head and shoulders, more than any other pattern that we talked about, has likely proven to be right, which means this. As long as the inverse head and shoulders plays out like it usually does, Lang thinks it could be smooth sailing up to 1280. So if you take a look, we'll be taking this out. Imagine how excited everybody would be if this thing took out this, this level. Now, on top of that, ever since the Christmas lows, Alphabet's uptrend has really been a thing of beauty. Ugly, beautiful. Higher highs, higher lows. Exactly the kind of picture that makes technicians salivate. See, each time it goes up, it goes up. It never takes out that low, okay? That's what that means. Late last month, the stock gave you what's known as a golden cross. And that's where the 50-day moving average goes above the 200-day moving average right there. That's very exciting for people, too. This is like a less sophisticated version of the Ichimoku cloud. But chart watching hedge fund managers love to see a golden cross. It gives them the confidence to buy, even after a major move higher. Then there's the check in money flow, the CMF. We know that, right? It measures the level of buying and selling pressure. It's been in positive territory since mid-June. This is just constantly being bought. To lie, it's a classic sign that the big institutions are really buying alphabet hand over fist. Oh, let's not forget the MACD. That's the uh, moving average convergence divergence, okay? And look at this just about to turn. It's a momentum gauge that helps charters detect changes in the stock's trajectory before they happen. With Alphabet, the MACD currently making bullish crossover where the black line goes above the red line. This is another positive signal that tends to be incredibly reliable. I got to tell you, if this thing takes us out tomorrow, then you're going to start seeing this pattern of that cloud widen, and then it's going to be off the races. Put it all together, and Lang thinks Alphabet is a uh, $1,232 stock that could break through to 1300 in short order. He's betting we break out that barrier and not that long, not that long after the company reports earnings in less than two weeks, April 19th. Of course, we've been conditioned to be disappointed when Alphabet reports and typically watch it crash through the floor. More often than not, Earnings have been a house of pain for this company. But if it can break the pattern, well, it would shock me. It would just shock me, but it would be huge. Next, take a gander at the daily chart of Snap. Another company I'm not that fond of, but lately has been red hot. Surely if the company came public in 2017, Snap became a total talk. Numbers kept falling short of Wall Street's expectations, and for the better part of two years, the stock drifted steadily down. But after bottoming late last year, Snap is just completely in fuego. The company reported a fabulous quarter in early February, and the stock immediately exploded higher on the news. Since then, it just keeps climbing and climbing. It's down more than double for 2019. The check of money flow has been strong all year. And Lang points out that Snap's been rallying on steadily increasing volume. That's a classic bullish tell. Two weeks ago, the stock made a golden cross. That's another very good sign. There's your golden cross. Remember, that's the 50 going over the 200 day. Now, for the past week and a half, Snap's been trading sideways, digesting its early gains. But Lion thinks we're looking at a bullish pennant pattern, and there's the pennant, where a stock quickly vaults higher, then spends a bit of time consolidating before resuming its rally. That'd be something. Wouldn't it be a second win for this previously left for dead stock that has already had an amazing rally? Most importantly, Lang likes what he sees in the Ichimoku cloud. Snap's cloud went from red to green early in March, and it continues to expand over time. Remember, expansion of the cloud is positive. Remember, when the cloud gets wider, well, i got to tell you, it means higher prices coming. So how much more upside could Snap possibly have? Lang can see the stock running into resistance to be high around 16 bucks, up 37% from these levels. But if Snap can clear that hurdle, he's thinking 20 bucks by year end. Wow! Finally, there's a daily chart of Alibaba, and that's the Chinese Amazon. All right, this is a $185 stock that's brushing up against its ceiling resistance at 188 like so many other names, 
This one has just been a powerhouse since bottoming in late December. Remember, this was the bear market, okay? And it ended late December. Powell switched directions right there. Lang likes that Alibaba's been rallying on rising volume of late, which is always very important. He likes the shake in money flow, which is very solid here, right? It's been super strong for months, indicating powerful institutional buying. He likes that we got a golden cross last month. Remember, one of the themes here is the golden cross is going to work its magic, uh, and the 50-day moving average provides a nice floor of support. Okay. Not bad. Best of all, Lang points out that Alibaba's got a good-looking cloud. It's green and it's expanding. Put it all together and he can see Alibaba making its way back to all-time highs, 210. This is practically the only Chinese stock I recommend, so I am gratified to hear Lang's take. Bottom line, Alphabet, Snap, and Alibaba have been screaming higher. And as much as we hate to chase so mad money, the charts as interpreted by Bob Lang suggests that all three of these Internet stocks have more room to run. I don't know if he's right. But it never hurts to have the charts on your side. Two out of three, I like Alibaba very much. I like Alphabet. Wow, Snap. I guess i got to go along for the ride. Catherine in Texas. Catherine. Thank you, Jim. My question. Dropbox has beat its quarterly estimates for the last three quarters, but is down 26% on the year. It reports May 8th. Should I buy, sell, or hold? Well, it's very tough to figure this one out because the last quarter was good and the stock is down substantially from that quarter. So I would tell you, Catherine, that that's not a good arbinger of what's going to happen here. Uh, the stock should have uh, found a, it, it seems like between box and drop box, it's just a couple of houses of pain. I would be careful. All right. And I like that company. I'm just saying that the, the chart and the stock are not what, saying what the company's doing. All right, our chartist says there's a number of indications flashing bullish for Alphabet. Can you imagine if it finally broke out? Snap and Alibaba. He says all three powering higher. I think it's a contrary call. Much more mad money ahead. I'm talking to one of the top execs of Eurozone's largest bank. Don't miss my sit down with Anna Boutine to talk Brexit, earnings, and company strategy. Then, think the Fed needs to hike rates? Ah, maybe think again. I'm going to show you how one single conference call could change your mind. And all your calls rapid-fire tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. At a moment when people are starting to get twitchy again about Europe, I want to check in with one of the largest European banks, Spain's Banco Santander. For my money, Santander is one of the best, least heralded financial institutions on earth. It's stable, it's well capitalized, and it's making a big push to expand into the United States and doubling down on Latin America. Now, earlier today, I got a chance to speak with Anna Boutin. She is the chairman of Santander about her vision for the company and her ambitions here in the United States. Pretty amazing. Take a look. Anna, you run the largest bank that many people in America have never heard of. Can you just talk about the scale of what Banco Santander offers? Sure, yeah, we have scale, not just global, but locally. So we we want to be big in the markets where we operate. And and in Europe and the Americas, we operate in 10 markets. We have 144 million customers. Very importantly, we have relevant market shares in all the places where we operate. If you ask most Americans what's the largest bank in Europe, they would say, well, Deutsche Bank or some bank in France. It's Banco Santander. By value, yes. By market value, we're the largest, uh, probably around 20% more than the next one. Now, when you go to Latin America, you're the bank of Latin America. And I know you just bought in the rest of your Mexican business. Must offer a lot better returns than people realize. 
Latin America has a huge unbanked population, uh, but very importantly for a bank, the middle class has grown a lot over the last few years. I always say the lows are always higher. And so you see stronger institutions in many countries like Brazil, for instance, and you're getting good, uh, good growth. Very importantly, there's many businesses in payments, for example. Um, so we make 50% of our profits in Latin America, 50%, but it, it's only 28% of our balance sheet. So there's a huge opportunity for growth going forward. I'm glad you brought up the balance sheet. Uh, you had both a shareholder meeting, then you had a huge, fabulous analyst day because you were very transparent. And what I saw is that there are people who are worried about your balance sheet, but you've raised a huge amount of cash. To me, it seems like a false worry. So look, we, ha we had a three-year plan, which we finished in 2018. We delivered on everything we right. said we would do three years ago. Even though Brazil had 9% drop in GDP, Argentina had problems, negative rates in Europe, and we went from 8.27 to 11.30 in CET1, our profitability went from 10% to 11.7 in terms of return on equity, and we grew in the right way. This is super important. We grew in the number of customers. We doubled digital customers to 32 million. So we really did everything we said we would do. Our viewers love dividends. You offer a very attractive yield. They're always asking me, well, Jim, isn't that too big? Uh, is there something wrong? I just think that I'd like to dispel that because you generate a lot of cash. We do, yeah. So we generated over these three years 25 billion. Um, of that, 13 billion went to our shareholders. 12 billion in dividends, 1 billion for the 81s and the Cocos. We accumulate That's an obscure bond, but very important for people who follow the banking industry very closely. Yes. It, comes, it really protects the debt holders. It comes between the equity and the pure debt. It's sort of in the middle. So that's 13 billion went to shareholders of the 25, 2 billion net went to acquisitions, and 18 billion went to reinforce our balance sheet. Uh, market share, United States, 3%. You could double that and still be well within the range of what the Fed is willing to have. Are you going to? So our target, not just in the US, but all over is organic growth. You know, when you have 144 million customers, that's big. Right. You know, that's probably double Wells Fargo. Right. I, I would say they're not as rich as Wells Fargo, but customers, but they have much more upside, right? So in the US, we want to do the same. We want to leverage our global scale, but I see ourselves as a community bank with a relevant presence in Europe and the Americas and being very close to customers. We have 13,000 branches across the world. That's the biggest branch network of any bank in the United States. Right, right. Now, but tell me, uh, you also have a stock that, which is a consumer finance company. Mm. You, you've got these different stocks that are related to you. Mm. How does it, if someone buys the consumer finance company, which you own about 70% of, what is that a measure of? Is that the community? So this was a strategy that was in place before it's we arrived. It's not your strategy. <laughs> that, well, you said it. Um, so, um, you know, it is what it is. We, um, we intend to keep it roughly as it is, even though we did just launch a takeover of our minority shareholders right. in Mexico because we thought the stock was very undervalued. So, you know, being listed is, it's fine. Okay. It's, it's not a problem, but it's not a, something we would look to do more of. All right, so speak to me about Brexit because you've got a handle on Europe like no other. Uh, I'm hearing people, very important business people saying, there is not enough food in the UK. I mean, is that scare tactic? Look, Brexit is not the end of Europe, okay? okay? And it will, I always try Does to- Does it bore you? No, it doesn't bore me okay, because I have, sure. I have lots of customers in the UK. We are one of the biggest banks right. in the UK. 
and we're one of the biggest banks on the continent. Spain, you know, has a lot of Brit Brits living there. So what we've tried is to really make sure we can deliver for our customers. But there's a very important point. You know, Europe needs more integration, wants more integration. And Britain was never going to be a part of that. So if you see the positive of this, is it's going to allow for faster integration in Europe, which we need. And it's going to allow, and I think all of us, are, you know, big boys or right. big girls, we need to find a great understanding because we have much more things that, you know, bring us together. And so we need to find a good way of working together going forward. You used the phrase, big girls. And I want me to, I want our viewers to know who you are because, you know, frankly, other than Beth Mooney at KeyBank, there aren't a lot of big girls. Who are you? And how did you get to this exalted position? Well, I started my life in the US. So I actually worked in Wall Street for eight years. And I JP Morgan. JP Morgan, yes. Um, and then I've been at Santander since 1990. Uh, Santander has been around for 165 years. I say this with a lot of caution, but we've paid a dividend for 50 years you know, every single year. Um, I've been in banking all my life, except for three years when I was asked to leave or fired by my father. And then I came back and- uh, We could have a special on that fired by your father, right? We, we could, yes. I, I was an entrepreneur for three years and right. I learned what it was to be on the other side of the table. Okay. From um, the bank. A little bit of a soap opera there, just a diversion, not important. You brought it up. I was not going there. Uh, global opportunity. You just bought in Mexico. Is Mexico the greatest place on earth to invest right now, both because of interest rates and because you've introduced some mortgage product? When I started buying in Mexico, everything was cash. Look, every time politicians or government officials in Europe start messing around with the mortgage market, I remind them of what happened in Mexico in the 90s. Nobody who was not, who didn't, I mean, only people who didn't need it could get a mortgage. And so, you know, I'm very proud that we're actually offering one of the best rates in mortgages in Mexico right now, around 9% for 15 years. And there's a lot of demand for and any, uh, any country in South America really standing out as some place that people would think in this country is uninvestable, but that you know better because you are a truly global banker. Look, I was uh, with a competitor of yours three years ago uh, saying Brazil is a great place and they were saying that's going to be a problem for you. You know, we have doubled our profits in Brazil over the last four years. This competitor was clearly a fool. Uh, when I look at what you're doing, I was going to disagree with you. I was going to say your greatest opportunity is the greatest banking environment in the world, which is the United States. I 100% agree. Okay. I think the United States, well, I don't think. The United States is a third of the banking market in the world. There's a trillion of trade between the United States and South America and Europe, and we are the best uh, bank to service customers, mid-market customers. Right. You know, we have customers in the Midwest that do auto parts where we help them in Mexico right. and Brazil, and vice versa. Customers we help in Mexico, Brazil, that want to be in the US. Right. We're very good in supply chain finance, for example. Um, and so this is a huge opportunity for us because we are really on both sides. When I think of a community bank, and I'm from Philadelphia. You are the community bank. You are the bank for the Eagles. Mm. You are the bank when I go to any events. Mm. Uh, you are the bank, frankly, for swag. Mm. Swag? You know swag? Yeah. Yeah. Um, is that Boston, Philadelphia? Is there another city that's coming next? Look, I was at school in Philadelphia and in Boston. <laughs> I so I went to Bryn Mawr and then Harvard College for a year. So I know Philadelphia. Pretty smart Bryn Mawr. Hard to get into. Yeah, I love the school. Yeah. yeah. No, look, we are a community bank which is in many communities. But the great thing about us is our scale. We can bring our scale so our bank in the US is as efficient as the right. biggest banks in the United States. So we invest in technology. We would be number three in this country from all the banks in terms of how much we're investing in technology. 
this is very important because today you can leverage that scale right. without losing that closeness, that relationship with the customer. Yeah, see if your bank were located in the United States, I think it would be a 10, not five. It's too connected with Europe right now. Yes, that's right. Well, that, look, that's Anna Boutin. She is the executive chairman of Banco Santander. Again, I urge you to look at the early April presentation they made if you're gonna buy, because I need you to know that it's a $5 stock because frankly, Europe's weak, but wow, what an opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. It is time! It's over the night! And then the light round is over. Are you ready? Skate Daddy! Time for the light round! Because we're going to start with David in New York, New Hampshire. David! Yes, Mr. Kramer. My son Connor would like to ask you a question. Sure, let's put him on. Hi, Mr. Kramer. My name is Connor from Nashville, New Hampshire. My dad is looking at Rockwell Automation. They have earnings on April 25th and have EPS of 1.8% higher than Wall Street. Also, in a stage one setup. Well, what the heck? I agree with you. And I think that Rockwell Automation is a good stock to buy. I actually think it's about to break out of here after a prolonged period where it's just been marking time. And I also see a uh, young lad, a reverse head and shoulders, just in case you might be a budding technician. Let's go to John in Florida, please, John. Hey, how are you, Kramer? I'm doing all right. How about you, partner? Good, good. Quick question. Uh, Pacific Gas and Electric. Man, that one's too hard for me. I'm going to – I never punt. I am punting on that one. That involves quartz and all sorts of other stuff I don't like. Larry in Texas, Larry! Hey, Kramer, how are you? I'm good, how about you? Well, I bought AT&T on... Well, okay, AT&T I like. I like Verizon more. Uh, but AT&T's got a good yield and they have the cash to pay for it. Let's go to Andy in Florida, Andy! South Beach, booyah, Jim. You're okay. the Messiah of stocks, markets, and investing. Raytheon is hovering below the bottom. I am tired of Raytheon. It didn't help don't my travel don't trust, don't so don't I'm not going to help it. I'm not recommending it. And that, ladies and good of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Everyone's still worried that the economy is too strong and the Fed needs to tighten now. We can put those concerns to rest at this moment. Just listen to last night's downbeat conference call from the second largest trucking company in the country, J.B. Hunt. You'll find yourself praying for the Fed to cut rates, not raise them. Yet the CFO of J.B. Hunt, David Mee, didn't mince words when he explained that what had been the company's hottest business, intermodal, the big containers that can swap from trains to trucks, had cooled. He tells us that volume or lack thereof is obviously the main story. Ouch. Certainly not the story CSX told this evening, but trucking is important to this economy. Apparently, January was outright weaker and February got hurt by the weather. But March, he said, when the service began to improve, we did not see a snapback in customer demand in March, which was our biggest surprise and frankly missed our expectations, end quote. How bad? Get this, for a steaming hot economy, volumes were down 7% in January, 6% in February, and down 7% in March. And when it comes to April, he says, quote, we are still waiting for customer demand to accelerate, end quote. 
Not only that, but the company's gotten, quote, aggressive on pricing to bring in more business. In fact, he expects pricing to be negative for the full year. So what the heck happened? How is J.B. Hunt doing so poorly? Among other things, the company pointed to the president's tariffs on China, which was supposed to rise from 10% to 25% last quarter. And when that didn't happen, there was too much inventory in the system. Terrence Matthews, the head of Intermodal, says, quote, warehouses are full. Wow. He goes on to explain that, quote, the sales to inventory ratio has crept up a little bit, end quote. Again, because of worries about those March 1 tariff increases that never materialized. He continues, I think they need to bleed off some inventory before things can normalize. How about the driver shortage that plagued the country for a long time? Consider it over. While there's still a lack of drivers in the Northeast, Ohio, Chicago, and Northern California, J.B. Hunt made it clear that this is not a problem in the rest, you know, really in most of the country. In fact, the possibility of wage reductions came up on the call, with management saying they aren't yet ready to take that step. But if they keep cutting prices sooner or later, something's got to give. I think it'll be driver salaries, because starting the second half of this year, you're going to see Uber freight kick in where the truck drivers can go on their cell phones, see which routes are available, and take them up. I'm betting Uber does the same thing to truck drivers that it did to cab drivers, putting further pressure on wages. Why does this matter? Because trucking is a huge tell for the real economy, which has definitely slowed year over year. This is the kind of conference call that I listened to, but Fed Chief Jerome Powell didn't, which is why he foolishly hit us with that rate hike too far in December. What else did J.B. Hunt tell us? When you listen to the consumer products companies, well, you're, you're not going to hear much about freight costs. Because freight prices are finally coming down, which means margins for all these companies can expand. And a lot of those stocks were down today. To me, freight was always the wild card in the inflation picture. During two years of healthy economic growth, freight costs soared. That chapter of the inflation story is now over. Still one more reason why the Fed doesn't need to tighten. If anything, they should be thinking about cutting rates if this keeps up. Stick with Kramer. All right, tonight's finishing two and two. Netflix was a tad disappointing, not that bad. IBM, a tad disappointing, not that bad. But United Continental was very good, and CSX was extraordinary. Compare that to J.B. Hunt, you start wondering, wait a second, this is a definitive mixed picture for this U.S. economy. I'd like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Craver, and I will see you tomorrow. Some bonds last a lifetime. Some bonds inspire confidence. And some you grow to rely on. These are the bonds worth investing in. For nearly 50 years, PIMCO has reinvented fixed income to create opportunities for investors in every market environment. So no matter what happens, you can build the bonds that mean the most to you. PIMCO, a global leader in active fixed income. Learn more at PIMCO.com bonds. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing.